rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt. Surely a cracking episode today. Finkelvich were on fine form. Danny Finkelstein, David Aronovich, podcast favourites, I think it's fair to say. Uh, they talked to us about the handball law, the San Francisco error, and uh, the King's advisors and other stratagems. Uh, so all of that is coming up uh, later in the show. Uh, first, it's time for this. And I'm delighted to be joined by our two favourite pollsters, Chris Curtis from YouGov. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Matt. And Deborah Mattison from Britain. Thanks. Morning, Deborah. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. So I thought we'd like to try and drill into as many polls and focus groups and things as we can over the next half an hour or so. Um, let's start with the obvious and Labour versus Conservatives. Uh, we've, we've seen one or two polls. There was a poll at the weekend, I think an opinion poll, which put Labour narrowly ahead. Keir Starmer nudging ahead of Boris Johnson on the who would make the best prime minister. What's the latest YouGov polling you've got saying, Chris? So we've got, I mean, a fairly similar picture, which is the national polls are pretty much neck and neck. So, yes, we are seeing a couple of polls with small Labour Party leads. Our most recent poll did have a small Conservative Party lead of about three points. But actually, what's possibly more interesting than that headline number is those kind of numbers that we're seeing start to shift underneath. And I think that's actually a lot worse news for the Conservatives. So Johnson's numbers are looking, I mean, pretty dire, to, to be honest. His his latest approval rating is down again this month. Um, but also when we look at these sort of party images, you know, what do people associate with the Conservative Party? What do people associate with the Labour Party? The Conservatives' numbers are, are looking looking pretty dismal as well. So one of the big things Boris Johnson did last year was convince the public that the Conservative Party was in touch with the general public. Today, just 19% of the public think that that applies to them. Just 21% of people think that the Conservative Party is trustworthy. More than twice that number think they're untrustworthy. So we're seeing a lot of things start to shift against the Conservatives at the moment, which if I was um, someone in the party, even looking ahead to, what, three and a half years' time, it would be something that I'd be I'd be starting to worry about. I suppose we should point out that, you know, particularly government approval uh, is about 55 percent now, 56 percent uh, in the YouGov polls. People say they disapprove of the government, uh, uh, what the government is doing. Uh, that's about the level it was when Boris Johnson won a majority of uh, 80 in December's election. Yes. And of course, I mean, we're British people are not the kind of people who usually approve of their government. So I think the average government <laughs> approval so. for the past 20 years is about is about where it is now. So we're not seeing anything that's sort of like historically crazy low. But it is the case that the Conservative Party is up against an opposition which is more fierce and more strategically disciplined uh, than any opposition they've been up against in the past decade. And I think it's also the case that a lot of the numbers are just slow 
slowly moving against them, and I think that that should be something that they can they should be concerned about. Uh, digging into the results today on uh, Boris Johnson's approval ratings, his net approval when you take the people who approve and the people who don't, uh, you, you take away the people who don't approve from the people that do, and you get a net score. So his net approval is minus twenty two, which is the lowest since he became PM. But even amongst Tories, it's gone from. Uh, positive 95 to positive 35. I mean, that's a big drop, even amongst the people who uh, still say they're going to vote Tory. So is is that the sort of the path that people go on, that they sort of lose faith in him and the government before they then switch to another party? I suppose we should say that approval is the worst number for the prime minister. So there's lots of ways we can ask about the popularity of a politician. And approval is the one that Johnson does worse on, because I think there's lots of people that may quite like him, may think he's trying his best, but think he's doing a bad job, but would still vote for him. So he does do better if you ask sort of, do you have a favourable view of Boris Johnson? Do you like Boris Johnson? Questions like that, um, which is one of the reasons for that that that, that difference. But, but yes, I mean, it, it is possibly the start of a journey. And I, I think given how volatile politics is at the moment, given how willing people are to shift between parties, you know, you can see the Conservative Party up at 40% at the first half of the year and then dropping down dramatically because we saw that happen last year. And people going off the party leader, I think, is one of the one of the things that should be a, a, a warning sign, a flashing light on the dashboard, if you're a political party, that you could be starting to lose chunks of voters. OK, Deborah Madison, let's bring um, uh, you in. You were on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about um, your time as a, as a pollster for Gordon Brown. And then uh, since look, d- digging into the, the what's been happening in the red wall uh, seats, if you and having been there in the highs and the lows with Gordon Brown, what would you be advising Boris Johnson to do given the direction the polls are shifting in? Is this an inevitable slide or is it possible to sort of let's bear in mind it's four years until the next election? Um, should he be worried at this stage? Deborah? Oh, I can't hear. Can't hear Deborah. Um, uh, what about you, Chris? Do you think he should be worried at this stage? Uh, yes. There's, so I think there's there's. One of the reasons why I think this isn't an inevitable slide is because we can compare what's happening in the UK to what's happened in a lot of the rest of the world, you know, and what we've seen, you know, we're about to see an incumbent prime minister in New Zealand almost certainly re-elected with a historic victory. We've seen the same thing happening in Australia, in a lot of European countries where actually leaders' approval has gone through the roof during this crisis. Even closer to home, you know, Mark Drakeford has gone from Mark Who to actually a fairly or very popular politician in Wales. Nicola Sturgeon is seeing almost record numbers for a politician in a democracy at the moment. So I don't think it's inevitable that um, uh, you'd see drop-off numbers like this because we're not seeing it anywhere else. I think to answer your second question, um, if you still haven't got Deborah back, it's... <laughs> it's, um, it's um, I think I think the biggest mistake throughout all of this is is to do with the messaging. Um, what people want in a crisis like this is, yeah, particularly one where there is a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what the best path is. There are going to have to be U-turns and mistakes. Is a leader who is sort of comes across as sober and measured and cautious, and Boris Johnson just hasn't really been any of those things. So when we came out of lockdown earlier this year, if you listen back about how Nicola Sturgeon was discussing that, she was going, yes, we need to be slow, we need to think about it, we don't know what's going to happen. Whereas what we got from sort of 
Boris Johnson was more sort of go to the pub, go back to work, get to the office. We need to start getting back to normal. And I think that that, particularly if we're now going back into lockdown again, will really start to grate on some people. Uh, Deborah, I think we've got you back on the line. What what advice would you give uh, Boris Johnson? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, actually, a few things. Um, the first was, let's not get too excited about the polls, because historically, you know, the opposition has been as much as 20-odd points ahead and still gone on to lose the election, and there's an awfully long way to go. Uh, the second thing is that Labour itself has a long way to go. So, uh, as Chris has said, uh, you know, although pulling level, uh, there are some underlying problems still for the opposition. So, uh, Labour is not trusted in the economy, for example, and Keir start. Um, you know, a lot of people still don't know. I spoke to one of my Red Wall interviewees, a lady called Michelle, yesterday. And she didn't know who Keir Starmer was. So, you know, that's problem. But the third thing about... I'll tell you what, we'll, I'll tell you what, Deborah, we'll come back to you because that line, um, I don't know if it's uh, Keir Starmer uh, trying to uh, interfere with you <laughs> talking about the fact that people don't know who you are, uh, don't, don't know uh, who he is. We'll get Deborah back on the phone in a sec. Um, Chris, we should talk um, about uh, the big political event of the week uh, was obviously uh, the Lib Dem... Uh, conference. Ed Davey making his first speech. Let's take a listen to Ed, uh, a clip from Ed Davey's speech. You who are carers to the parents of disabled children, to the thousands of young people caring for your mum or your dad, I understand what you're going through. And I promise this. I will be your voice. Well, we finally got to hear Ed Davies' voice there. Um, Chris, how big a mountain do the Lib Dems have to climb? A, a pretty pretty big mountain. Um, and so far, they're sort of almost slipping further and further down the cliff. So some of the polling that we're seeing coming out of like, Wales in particular, but also the British polling, we're seeing some of the worst numbers for the Lib Dems that we've seen you know, in, in a fairly long time. Um, and I think the real challenge for them is you sort of have sometimes called a, a tinkerbell effect with smaller parties. You know, if people if people believe a smaller party is going to be successful, it can quite often become successful uh, because you know the, the, you, you, if, if people people then start thinking it's relevant, it starts getting invited. You know, they start getting invited on TV, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that happens backwards as well, so you can end up in a in a reverse spiral, which I fear the Lib Dems may currently be in, where they did badly in the election, people stop talking about them, people stop thinking about them and therefore they continue to do worse and worse and i think there's one really worrying kind of tipping point for them which is at the moment they're polling fairly close to the green party now if we go into may election next year and the green party starts to do better than them across the board say in london in scotland where they almost certainly will but potentially in wales as well and across other parts of the country in local elections then there may be this sort of narrative starting that the green party becomes the third party in britain which could be really damaging for the lib dem so they really need to try and avoid that happening and to stop this this downward spiral that it looks like they're in if you like what you're hearing you can listen to the whole of my times radio show either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, Chris, uh, let's um, uh, park the Lib Dems then for a moment. They've got a big mountain to climb, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, yesterday's speech alone is going to uh, get uh, Ed David much further up that mountain. Let's talk about the one person who is consistently popular, po- possibly the most popular politician in the country. Let's take a listen to, and this, this is how in all the focus groups we've done on Times Radio, but let's take a listen to uh, a, a clip from uh, last week's focus group amongst Scottish voters. Barlowski, Rishi Sunak, I think it's his name. I think when that came out, I think a lot of my friends and close associates were delighted. So I think having something like that, I think with a guy like Rishi who came across pretty well, I think done the Conservatives great. I think some of the other guys behind him have made an absolute mess as well. I think Matt Hancock comes across again another bumbling idiot. I think Don McRab comes across as angry. Uh, I don't know anyone else within the Conservative Party, but certainly Rishi seems to have come across pretty well. Yeah, I agree with Alan totally there. I, I wouldn't know anybody else apart from that Rishi Sunak. That there isn't anybody I would recognise or point out in a list that, you know, related to the Conservatives, especially up in Scotland. Everybody loves Rishi Sunak, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everybody does. Um, Our latest um, approval rating of him, 49% of the country think he's doing a good job. 14% think he's doing a bad job. So that's a a multiple. Obviously, there's still a big chunk of the country who don't know or haven't really heard of him. But significantly more people uh, think he's doing well as, as Chancellor of the Exchequer. And part of that is, as was mentioned in your focus groups there, down to the fact that he has basically been throwing money around to save people's jobs. I think that's inevitably helped. But I think, and and that's therefore going to become more difficult over the winter and and into next year when he can't do that anymore. But I think a big part of it as well, and you picked up on some of that in the focus groups, is he comes across well. He seems like a nice person. He's quite good at standing up there and giving the important speech. And I think that really matters and is important in the politician as well. And I think you can also match this back a little bit more to sort of what I was saying about Johnson earlier. You know, Rishi it almost has that slightly more sober, cautious um, rhetoric when he's speaking, which I think is more suited to a crisis like this than Johnson's uh, sort of less sober nature. And do you think that's part of what it is that the, the different moments help different politicians and? in the way that, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has enjoyed popularity in Scotland, as you were saying, Mark Drakeford in Wales, actually a sort of calm, not too showy communicator who's not averse to delivering bad news in a, in a sort of nice way is actually more what you want, rather than Boris's, uh, Boris Johnson's um, keenness on being optimistic and focusing on the positive actually just sort of starts grating on people. I think that's, I think that's completely it. And Johnson was undoubtedly the right politicians for the Conservatives last year. The way he managed to drag the Conservatives up from about 16% in the polls to a historic landslide victory in a matter of months. And that was down to his personality, his optimism, his I am going to get Brexit done and I'm going to do whatever it takes. That worked for that point. 
it doesn't seem to be working so well for this point. And earlier in the year, we saw a slightly different Boris Johnson when we were going into lockdown, who was doing all of these things. But as time's gone on, it seems like he's reverted back to sort of classic Boris. And I think that that, well, the, the approval ratings at least, seem to show that that isn't working as effectively. Deborah, I think we're now down to two yogurt pots and a piece of string. But are, are you there? <laughs> I hope so. Am oh, yes, we know. can hear you. We can hear you. We can hear you. What do, when you're doing your focus groups, what do people make of Rishi Sunak? Well, they, they really like him. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's been the most popular politician in the country for quite a long time, but they don't know very much about him. Um, and, and one thought that I have is that if people had the sense that it's very much the kind of commentariat take on him, that, that you know, he is the person who is... Uh, fighting for the economy, uh, you know, the economy versus health uh, battle. He's the person fighting for the economy. I wonder if they would love him quite as much because it remains the case that people are still very much prioritising health over the economy. Not to say they're not worried about the economy. They're very worried about the economy. Um, But, yes, I think, uh, you know, I think nonetheless he comes over very well. And he's... um, in contrast with Boris Johnson, and I just caught the end of you chatting about Boris there, he seems to be his own man. And where I think Boris Johnson is going most badly wrong is that he's lost that sense of, you know, he, ha- he was very powerful, he seemed very driven. We asked in our coronavirus diaries last week if Boris Johnson was an animal, what animal would he be? He is a sheep. And one person said he's unable to make his own decisions. He just follows those around him and people giving him advice or what the public are demanding. So he's chopping and changing all the time. And I think that's an incredibly dangerous place for the prime minister to be. That's absolutely uh, fascinating. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll come on to uh, the the government, uh, how the public view the handling of coronavirus and their willingness to stick to uh, lockdown measures in just a sec. This is Pick of the Polls with Chris Curtis and Deborah Mattinson. So, coronavirus. Uh, We've obviously talked about the government's handling of it and uh, the approval is up a tiny bit. But in terms of the regulations... And, you know, they're getting tough and moving towards uh, local lockdowns. Deborah, what's your sense of where the public is? Because we sort of get mixed messages sometimes. Uh, Opinion polls seem to suggest that people want more lockdown, more tough measures right now. And then we see pictures of people, you know, in large groups outside pubs and actually maybe nobody's abiding by the rules at all. What's your sense? So I, I think those pictures, as they always do, they, you know, it's, it's, it's a story being created out of what's a tiny minority. And I think consistently all the polls, all the focus groups, all the qualitative work that we've done suggests that the vast majority of people are prioritising the health risk over the economic risk and, and sort of prepared to make the sacrifices. And in the end, they feel that, you know, probably those measures aren't enough. And I think there's a sort of air of weary resignation that people assume that there are going to be more measures coming down the line quite fast. And and in a way, it can't happen soon enough for them. So and in terms of the the mood, the mood of the country, I I was just looking at this before coming on. I mean, at at the end of August, the, the overriding emotion that people told us they were feeling was hope. But now, sort of last week, we're back to all the misery. You know, heaven knows I'm miserable now. People are worried. People are scared. Uh, people are sad, people are angry. It's it's back to kind of very negative uh, feelings, I think. Uh, Chris, I know you go do the same thing. You ask every week, uh, what, how have you felt uh, in the past week? Uh, the mood currently, 44% are happy. 
But 44% are stressed. That's up from 35% in the depths of the lockdown. But also 40% are frustrated. Yeah. Up, up from about uh, 35% a month ago. So, that's, yeah, we're sort of happy, stressed and frustrated. That probably just sum up the nation. Yeah, I mean, we, we're not seeing the we're not seeing the extreme movements that we saw at the start of lockdown when suddenly everybody was massively scared and it did have a sort of big shock on the country's psyche. We're not seeing those kind of dramatic movements again. But yes, I mean, I, I basically agree with everything Deborah says there. There seem, seems to be one of those areas where the sort of Westminster elite bubble is really, really out of touch with the views of the general public. The general public are overwhelmingly following lockdown rules, totally fine with bringing in stricter rules. You keep hearing quotes appearing from government sources about how nervous they are about how the public will react to additional lockdown measures. I don't know where that's coming from because all of the polling, and as Deborah said, all of the focus groups consistently shows that the public would be totally fine with additional restrictions if they're told they're necessary. And it seemed a bit odd to me, this sort of grand old Duke of York routine that we saw last week with sort mm. of Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance marching everyone up the hill on Tuesday just to be marched down again on Wednesday with a fairly modest set of reforms. I don't know why the government felt the need to sort of make everyone very nervous about yeah about where the virus was going, only to not put in place really measures that were that strict at all. And what impact is coronavirus having on sort of broader uh, public attitudes? There's also been a lot of ink spilt on think pieces about how it has changed forever the way that we view whether it's the world of work or the role of the state and clapping carers and the NHS and that sort of thing. Is that actually borne out by polling and, and focus group work that you're doing, Deborah? Yes, it is. I mean, we, we're finding consistently that people are saying that they would be very disappointed if, if you know, basically Britain didn't change as a result of all of this. Um, only 9% say that they want us to go back to normal. And yes, we've seen a refocus on, you know, on care workers, on the NHS. All of that has changed. And of course, how we work um, and how we feel about work and how we move around. A lot of people are, you know, valuing the time they spend with their families more, valuing their homes more. Uh, we're seeing that through all of our focus groups. People are, are saying that that's their real priority. They want to, you know, enjoy being in their space. And I think some of those things will will last. Actually, I think that they're going to, there's going to be lasting change. And certainly, I know that, you know, a lot of the companies that we work with at Britain Thinks are are looking now about how they can respond to that change. If they're a retailer, or you know, how, what are they going to do about their own teams? Are they going to work more virtually permanently? It seems to be what people want. And I think there's. You know, I think there's real change afoot, but some way to go before it all settles down. Obviously, we're we're in, you know we're definitely not out of this yet. And Chris Curtis, what about what about your your take on this? What impact is it having on sort of attitudes towards tax and spend and welfare and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, the, 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 our data is also showing the same thing as what Deborah said. I think a lot of trends will be accelerated by this. I think particularly the work from home trends, um, but also when we look at political attitudes, it seems to be accelerating some trends as well. And what we've seen over the past few years is a shift leftwards, really since the Conservative government came in, on a lot of those big economic questions. So as um, as spending cuts were made, the public increasingly started to favour a larger state and you know, maybe even higher taxes to pay for it. The sort of welfare narrative that we saw in those early Cameron years of we need to cut welfare benefits, there's welfare scroungers. When you run a lot of the polling questions again now that we were running then, 
um, you notice that attitudes have changed and that narrative no longer works. And that does seem to be have accelerated slightly during this crisis. So the public are increasingly moving leftwards on some of those big economic questions. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a sort of, you know, a, a Johnson's conservatism isn't maybe um, as economically uh, right wing as, as we've seen with previous conservative governments. Just before I let you go, then, what is the, the, the poll or the trend or the or the new issue that we should keep an eye on, which hasn't quite sort of turned yet, but is the, is the issue to watch? I'll start with you, Deborah. I, I think it's about responsible management of the economy, because while I agree with what Chris has just said, I think there are also some concerns about what's happening in the detail. There are some concerns for the Tories about, you know, are they really looking out for ordinary people or are they prioritizing you know the, the bigger companies the wealthiest are they putting the economy ahead of health and so on some real watch outs for them but going back to labor and how labor are doing the biggest problem i think in lots of ways for labor apart from you know getting keir starmer out there which they're not doing very well it's very difficult circumstances is actually about how well they've managed the economy because it's one thing to see a tory party spraying money around quite another thing to have labor party talking about it they don't trust labor on the economy and that you know that's something that i think we need to watch very carefully. What about you, Chris? What's the, what's the issue to watch? Yeah, seeing how Labour can start to drag themselves um, up on all of their biggest weaknesses, the biggest, most obvious one being the economy that Deborah mentions, I think will be an interesting thing to watch over the coming months. But in terms of like the most important question facing the country, it is all to do with Scotland. You know, we have a Scottish parliamentary election next year. The SNP currently looks to be winning that with a landslide. Is that going to hold? Because then we have an even bigger question if they do, which is, is there going to be a Scottish independence referendum? And at the moment, it looks like, yes, we'll win that. And that will have profound effects for the future of our country. So that's by quite some distance the most important polling number to be watching at the moment. Talking of highs and lows, uh, I'll leave you to decide which one it is. It's Finkelvich. It's that (laughs) time on a Tuesday morning when we are joined by Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And David Ivanovich. Hello. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us. Uh, now then, um, I, like, I like what we're talking about today because it's all a bit weird, but it'll make people think about things in a way they hadn't thought about them before. Uh, let's talk about the lessons of the handball law. Danny, do you want to kick us <laughs> off first of all? Yeah, well, David, David and I have been communicating about this because David is a Tottenham Hotspur fan uh, and I rather shared his indignation at the very last minute handball that was given against uh, Dyer in the uh, in the Newcastle game on the weekend. But there is a political angle to this. They are struggling over the handball rule in the Premier League, in, in international football actually, uh, as to uh, exactly how to define what is a handball. Is it a handball when somebody kicks the ball at you and it hits, happens to accidentally hit your hand? And they've come up with a very complicated rule about whether your body shape changes. And it turns out that while this is more precise, it often defies common sense, as indeed it did on that occasion. Probably technically what he did was uh, against the rules, but common sense uh, suggested it wasn't. At least that, uh, you know, or... But the problem is, of course, common sense is... uh, you know, in the eye of the beholder. So it turned out that Jamie Carragher, the Liverpool defender, thought it was ridiculous to give a penalty for that. Roy Keane, the former Manchester United midfielder, thought it was perfectly acceptable to give a penalty. The point about it is that you often are making uh, judgments in politics about whether to use common sense or rules. And it infuses lots of things 
even monetary policy or how you deal with inflation. But at the moment, also, obviously, the question of whether you have rules uh, that govern COVID uh, constraints or whether you rely on people's common sense and social cooperation. So David and I were uh, beginning with a bit of a football chat because we're both big fans of different teams. Uh, We rather agreed on the handball decision, but the political consequences intrigued us both. So go on then, David. Where do you see the political consequences of the handball law? What I think is really interesting is the genesis of this. So part of the genesis of this was a demand for clarity uh, because referees were giving decisions and people would say, at one point you're giving this decision and at the next time you're giving a different decision for a different player. It's not fair. Let's be clear. So gradually they've talked themselves into a position and ruled themselves into a position whereby you can effectively get a free goal in a circumstance under which there was never any likelihood of your getting a goal and no goal was prevented. In other words, it's simply not what the thing was originally designed to do. That's, you didn't want people using their hands to stop you having a good goal-scoring chance in the penalty box. But that's not what's happening. And now you can see a real incentive, so you've created a perverse incentive through the clarity of your rule to do certain things like whack the ball towards the another guy's arms if you possibly can because you've got a better chance of getting a goal that way than you have of trying to go past him and scoring um which is more which, uh, and i think that's really uh, and i thought that was really interesting first it's the kind of be careful what you wish for thing you know you all kind of moan about it and you moan about it and you moan about it and you say we want something much clearer and then when you get it you really don't like the clarity. And I think there are all kinds of situations in which that applies in politics and in social rules and so on, in which your demand for something to be made absolutely clear actually takes you further and further away from the reason why you wanted to do it in the first place. Yes, and it also, by the way, Matt, and this is also true of the newly introduced video assistant referees, what that has shown is you can't, in the end, get complete certainty, as David has just argued. There just is an area of judgment um, which it is impossible to uh, remove. I do actually lean towards rule-based systems. I think common sense is... um, obviously very valuable as a rule of thumb, but it's very difficult when you're trying to make law. And so you do have to be pretty specific. Um, But uh, this does, although I lean towards it, this does illustrate, and lots of football examples illustrate this, uh, a big problem with, with, I suppose, using the rules um, too, too specifically. And I, I suppose, you know, in terms of, you know, people want clarity. They want um, everything to be very precise and clear. I mean, we've seen exactly what happens with coronavirus, everyone basically knows what they're supposed to do with coronavirus. Uh, don't mix in large groups. Wash your hands. Put a mask on. But once you start getting in, why is it six people and not seven? And can I, do I have to wear a mask when I'm in Pret or not? Um, and people want all that clarity. And the trouble is when you get more and more clarity, actually it means you can do less and less stuff. <laughs> Yes. And, and of course, you know, we know this. The more that the rules are made concrete, the more absurd they think they are. So that the handball rule to most football fans now sounds ridiculously complicated and everyone's calling for it to be 
changed. But if you change it, you return obviously to complete uncertainty about what exactly is an accidental touch of the ball and what isn't. Uh, if you don't, as David correctly says, people game the system. So the coronavirus rules are very similar, actually, in this way. Um, I, I do think in the end you have to specify uh, quite tight rules. I sust- And I guess that that means that referees have to, um, and we all have to, abide by uh, the rules in their very specific nature rather than trying to rely on yeah. something as unreliable as well, just common sense but 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 also but but i also think that part of the lesson we might learn from it is this which is that people like us maybe shouldn't demand total clarity all the time by nitpicking at the existing rules to try and find if we can find a hole in them because what we might get on the other end is a clarification that doesn't make any sense um uh, and, and and we do do this. So one of the things that happens, uh, quite often what happens is somebody says, OK, well, we're going to have to do this somewhere. So we're going to say it's the rule of six. So immediately we say, why not the rule of seven? And why exactly six? And six under exactly what circumstance? And, and so on. And and essentially we take away, we move away from the reason why we're doing it in the first place, which is to have a reasonable level of physical distancing without closing down uh, and so on. And we move it to something else, which is the terrible kind of lack of total clarity that we have in in following this rule. OK, but let's, we may, in fact, we're going to do this in a slightly different order. Let's talk then about, uh, sticking with coronavirus, the king's wicked advisors and other stratagems. Who wants to pick up and bump with that one? Well, this is one of this is this is this is one of mine, and I just wanted to do it because one of the things I'm interested in is the fact that a whole lot of Tory MPs who are now very cross with the government for one reason or another, they're getting in the net from constituents. They're actually kind of tend towards the libertarian wing, so they don't like these regulations anyway. But on the other hand, they have very recently won the election under Boris Johnson. So who are you going to blame? And under circumstances like this, um, and actually almost all circumstances, you get what I call the king's wicked advisors uh, uh, scenario, which is you locate it in an advisor and you say, if only the top person, top man or woman, would just change their advisors, would change Fiona What's-Her-Name and Nick Timothy, would change Dominic Cummings, would change Seamus Mill, whatever, then in that case everything would be right because actually we're very loyal to the leader him or herself, but actually it's them that we've got to get rid of. And this is a really kind of medieval concept. You couldn't get rid of the king, you couldn't criticise the king, but you could always criticise the king's wicked advisers and try and get the king's wicked advisers executed or impeached or, or something like that in order to send a big message to the king that actually he would have to change his ways. OK, well, um, one person who's got very carried away with this is Steve Baker. This is him speaking to Times Radio's Ross Kempsell. People have got a great deal of faith in Boris Johnson. But, oh, you know, I'll push the boat out. You know, many of us will have seen Lord of the Rings. And there's a scene in Lord of the Rings where Theoden, the king, is under the spell of his advisers. And he has to be woken up from that spell. And when he wakes from that spell, joy, joy, joy comes to pass in the kingdom. And I'm afraid at the moment, somebody needs to wake Theoden from his slumber. And when, he, when Theoden awakes, and I mean Boris... Everything will come right. <laughs> I love that bit when he adds in, and I mean Boris, just to be absolutely clear. <laughs> and not Theoden. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Actually, Theoden. I'm not literally oh. talking about Theoden. Um, I, I've I, been, uh, as someone who can't start any I... films that involve uh, wizards or people with hairy feet, I don't actually know what he's talking about, but other people tell me it's a very good metaphor. 
<laughs> um, yeah, I've never seen. Uh, well, I've I'm not sort of. I've seen Lord of the Rings once, which struck me as sort of like an extended video game. And I watched it on screen with the book I had to give up with give up on. I'm afraid. But um, the the I've been what I have been is one of the King's Wicked advisors, and I've uh, I've experienced exactly the phenomenon David has talked about, um, where um, William had you know really what people wanted to do was get rid of William Hague or John Major, but they centred it on his advisors and you know that was uncomfortable because uh that meant centuries on me um and um you know i i think i had two feelings one was uh, you know it wasn't actually there was an element of truth in it right certainly some of the mistakes that he made either john major or particularly william haig probably were down to things that i'd been involved in or advised him on right um and so it was reasonable to say that was um you know my fault or to point to the influence of advisors but on a bigger scale it was obvious that the problem with the conservatives during the period when i was working for him was was strategic it related to the party more deeply it, to some extent it was william but it was more more than that. And I would say that's also the case now, right? Um, it isn't the case that uh, Boris Johnson, if Boris Johnson awoke from sleep, the government would be uh, ultimately rendered completely coherent and doing all the things that Steve Baker wants. It is the things that the things that Steve Baker wants, uh, which the government does actually try broadly speaking to follow have ended are are, are often contradictory uh, and have um, led the government to the wrong place so um, I think it is even deeper than the king let alone the king's advisors <laughs> what I love about this is that the I mean I actually do know the Lord of the Rings because I'm of that generation where it was obligatory not only to read the Lord of the Rings but to tell people which character you were going to be um and the funny thing about when they get rid of the king's wicked advisor in this case a character called Grima Wormtongue and you both really knew that didn't you etc Theoden then rides can we, out can we just and... fade him out and <laughs> 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 we'll dip back in when he's finished go on, <laughs> go on David explain what you're talking about no 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 I'm, I'm nearly finished <laughs> but I, I do understand why you're saying this um uh <laughs> Theoden then rides out and he's killed. That's the point. That's a heroically killed. So I think this is Steve Baker demanding that, uh, that, that Boris Johnson heroically rides out, cast off his hat, and then rides out to be killed um, and replaced presumably by somebody even more to Steve Baker's liking. Maybe somebody a bit like Steve Baker. Actual Steve Baker. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, right before I let you go, uh, Danny, I know you wrote about this in your column last week, but I thought it was really interesting. The San Francisco error. Yeah, the San Francisco era is simply this. When I visited San Francisco in my 20s, I was constantly lost. It's on a grid system. You take a map, but you don't know where you are. So you don't know whether to go right, left, uh, straight ahead, behind you. Uh, and it turned out that I thought the right way every time was to go downhill. I noticed a pattern of this. Every time I was lost, I went downhill. And obviously, uh, that was only true, correct well, direction part of the time. People make this mistake the whole time. Uh, so, for instance, we think that Chris Whitty may be wrong with the figures he's given for the doubling time for infection rates. Well, he might be uh, wrong indeed, because there are lots of ways, why, reasons why you can't calculate it easily. Uh, but if he's wrong, he could just as easily be wrong in the, that he's being too optimistic as well as being too gloomy. We always assume that if he's wrong, it must mean that uh, things are better than they seem. So we have a yeah. tendency, all of us, what I call the San Francisco era, to head down a hill when yeah. we don't know where we're going. 
There's a very good example of this at the moment, actually, in the way people are reacting to polls in the United States. Most people over here tend to support Joe Biden, but they're very nervous that Donald Trump will get in. So whenever they talk about the margin of error in the poll, they assume it must be going in Joe Biden's favour and will correct in Donald Trump's favour, and therefore they're very worried about it. I have never yet seen anybody make the assumption that it could possibly be an error in the other direction. I haven't seen it. And that's because we, we yeah, um, and it, but, it, but I suppose that the problem then with like, when you're you know drawing up government policy and that sort of thing is that if everyone is erring on this sort of optimistic outcome, uh, that that can influence what you end up doing, can't it? And, and in the case of coronavirus, it can influence the way that the public behave. Well, I think it possibly has, um, and uh, and and, it, and it's to be taken into account. But you know, all you can do with forecasts, and the same was true with Brexit, by the way. All you can do is try to make a good faith forecast about roughly what you think is going to happen. And of course, that may be wrong in both directions. Now, if one direction turns out to be much more costly than the other, if the error is in one direction, it's more costly than if it's in the other. That obviously is an important part of your calculation. But all I was making was this simple point: everybody points out how much we don't know about coronavirus and it's completely correct we don't so we might be making an error in estimating it but that error may be leading us to underestimate the problem as well as to overestimate it and it you can't be guided solely by the idea that we might not be right because uh, we might not be right means we could be requiring tighter rather than looser measures that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box too. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.